Next year, we mark the 150th anniversary of the beginning of the Civil War. The VHS will usher in this event with a major exhibition that opens on February 4th. It's called An American Turning Point, The Civil War in Virginia. The exhibition will be on, on view here all next year. Then it will travel around the state to a number of other museums. It's made possible, thank you very much for that. It's made possible by generous funding. I don't care if you interrupt me, it's just the guest speaker, that's what's what I'm worried. Um, the exhibition is made possible by generous funding from the state's sesquicentennial commission, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and other sources. Now only through the bloodiest conflict of our history did Americans resolve long-running disputes over union and slavery and other issues. Ever since then, the significance of the war, its advent and its many outcomes, has stirred debate and study. This evening, we're especially fortunate to have one of the preeminent historians of the Civil War help us put this dramatic era into context. In particular, Gary W. Gallagher will address the way North and South have reflected on the nature of what it meant to be a part of the United States of America. Gary is a great friend of this institution. He's spoken here before. In fact, he was just recalling that his last talk, I think, was up in the mural gallery of all places where we don't do lectures anymore, so that was quite a treat. And he's conducted research over the years in our rich holdings of Civil War manuscripts. In addition, he's directed a number of his graduate students to come here and do likewise. Now, you might say about Gary that he is a veritable one-man cottage industry, producing some of the very finest scholarship on the Civil War today. Gary is the John L. Now the Third Professor of History at the University of Virginia, and is also currently serving as the Cavalier's Distinguished Teaching Professor, which is given out for two-year periods of time. His scholarly output, and I don't know about you, but um, his scholarly output probably stresses uh, the load-bearing capacity of many of your bookshelves because it is prodigious. It includes, but is not limited to in any way, the Confederate War and, most recently, Causes Won, Lost, and Forgotten, How Hollywood and Popular Art Shape What We Know About the Civil War. He'll be available after the lecture to inscribe these books, which you can purchase in the museum shop. And If there's a Civil War aficionado on your holiday shopping list, this is a great opportunity. So please join me in welcoming Gary Gallagher, who will speak to us on the topic, The Real Lost Cause, The Idea of Union in the Memory of the Civil War. Thank you very much. I'm going to switch to a different uh, miking situation here so that I can move around a little bit. So answer all your cell phone calls while I'm doing this. <laughs> I'll be ready to go in just a minute. It's, it's wonderful to be here in Richmond tonight and to see so many friends, including Ed Ayers sitting just three rows back here. I can't believe Ed turned out for this. I don't think there's anything I've ever even thought that Ed and I haven't talked about and bounced off one another. So it's a, it's a very generous act for him. Uh, to be here. Some of the things that you heard in the introduction were said very gently. Uh, the idea that I spoke in the, in the mural gallery, what that really means is, my God, he's old. Because <laughs> no one has spoken in the mural gallery for God knows how long. But, but I did, and I have wonderful memories of there. I talked about Jubal early in the Lost Cause in the mural gallery with Summer behind me and Jeb Stewart in his autumnal setting to the left and Stonewall Jackson on the valley, Pike to the right, and this incredible uh, lost cause vibe in the room talking about old, old Jube. Uh, so tonight I'm going to kind of do the other side of that. I'm going to talk about the Union side of the war. And I wondered whether anyone would come tonight. I really did as I... <laughs> As I drove over to Richmond, I thought maybe I could run this as a sort of colloquium. Uh, the three people who showed up and I would sit around the table and they'd tell me why they didn't like my topic and then we'd go have a drink. <laughs> but here you are. And so I'm going to go ahead and give my talk. The other little bit of, of not quite truth in advertising is that my talk isn't really about the overall memory of the Civil War. It is about the Union. Union and what Union meant 
in the mid-19th century. Uh, that's what my talk is about. Uh, the loyal American citizenry fought a war for union uh, that also killed slavery. In a conflict that stretched across four years and claimed more than 800,000 United States casualties, the nation experienced huge swings of civilian and military morale before, as you all know, crushing Confederate resistance in the end. Union always remained the paramount goal uh, for the loyal citizens of the United States, always. It was the paramount goal in 1861. It was in 1865. And that is a fact clearly expressed by Abraham Lincoln in speeches and other statements designed to garner the widest possible support for the war effort among those living in the United States. What Walt Whitman said of Lincoln and Union in the wake of the president's assassination applied equally to most loyal Americans. Unionism in its truest and amplest sense, wrote Whitman, formed the hard pan of his character, Lincoln's character. And Whitman went on to define it as, quote, a new virtue unknown in other lands, the foundation and tie of all as the future will grandly develop. Now, Whitman celebrated a union that carried great meaning for the mass of loyal citizens who joined him in equating it with the nation. It represented the cherished legacy of the founding generation, a democratic republic with a constitution that guaranteed political liberty and afforded individuals a chance to better themselves economically. From the perspective of loyal Americans, their republic stood as the only hope for democracy in a Western world that, from their perspective, was turning its back on small-d democracy. They had paid attention to the European revolutions of the late 1840s, and from their point of view, Europe was going the wrong way. Oligarchy was reasserting itself, aristocracy, monarchy. All of Europe was going in exactly the opposite direction that most loyal Americans believed the United States was going, the Union was going, and they took great pride in the fact that they were out of step with the rest of the Western world. Untold Unionists believed fervently that slaveholding aristocrats had established the Confederacy. They made that point. These are oligarchs. These are aristocrats who've taken the deep South states out of the Union initially. They did not see, these loyal Unionists did not see the slaveholding South as a small-D, democratic, small-R, Republican society. And that was something that troubled them greatly. They believed that an oligarchic ruling class threatened much of the legacy of the founding generation. And they believed that the American Republic, what happened to the American Republic, was not important only for people who lived in it, but also as an example to all the rest of the Western world. Should armies of citizen soldiers fail to restore the Union, they believed, forces of privilege on both sides of the Atlantic could pronounce ordinary people incapable of self-government and render irrelevant the military sacrifices and political genius of their revolutionary fathers. Issues related to the institution of slavery precipitated secession and the outbreak of fighting, but the loyal citizenry initially gave little thought to emancipation in their quest to save the Union. By the early summer of 1862, as many of you know, victorious Union armies stood poised to win the war with slavery largely intact. The United States had won tremendous success in the West, from Henry and Donelson down through Shiloh, the fall of Nashville, the loss of New Orleans, the loss of Memphis. 100,000 United States soldiers were outside Corinth, Mississippi. That vital crossroads, rail crossroads, everything had gone wrong in the West. And here in the East, the largest army of the Republic was five miles outside Richmond, and Joseph Eggleston Johnston was in command, which meant it wouldn't be long until they were closer. <laughs> and then we know what happened. A shell fragment hit Johnston in the chest, and R.E. Lee got out from behind his desk and took the field. And a seismic shift occurred. Beginning here in Richmond with the Seven Days and Lee's ascension to command of what he called the Army of Northern Virginia, events on the battlefield dictated that the bloodletting would continue. And as months went by and casualties mounted and a shortage of manpower loomed, emancipation and African-American military service assumed increasing importance in the loyal states. Eventually, most loyal citizens, though profoundly prejudiced, 
by 21st century standards and largely indifferent toward enslaved black people, nevertheless embraced emancipation as a tool to punish slaveholders, to weaken the Confederacy, and to remove what they saw as the only internal threat that could undo the sanctity of the Union. Get rid of slavery. We will not have another crisis such as this, they believed. African-American freedom still seemed problematical in the bloody summer of 1864, when Union armies bogged down in Georgia and Virginia and anti-emancipation Democrats looked with hope toward the November elections. Only striking victories in Atlanta by William Tecumseh Sherman, I've said his name, and in the Shenandoah Valley by Philip Henry Sheridan, only those military events turned the situation around, re-elected Abraham Lincoln and huge Republican majorities in the House and the Senate, and put in place finally and definitively emancipation as something that would happen if the United States triumphed in the war. It would be a non-negotiable condition for peace. Now, armies composed of citizen soldiers occupied a central position in this grand drama of union. Their hard and costly service salvaged the Union and more than any other factor made possible emancipation. They functioned as the most powerful national symbol and unifying institution in the United States, bringing together young men from all over the country, regardless of political affiliation. In a conflict marked by deep divisions within the loyal states, they represented self-sacrifice reminiscent of the Continental soldiers who had followed George Washington. And that is something that people spoke directly to. They didn't just vaguely think they were like those Continental soldiers, those small R Republican soldiers doing their patriotic duty for the greater good. They tied them specifically to those soldiers and to George Washington. They confirmed those citizen soldiers did notions of American exceptionalism based on a long-standing antipathy toward professional soldiers and large standing armies. Observers who watched 150,000 Union veterans parade down Pennsylvania Avenue in the Grand Review on May 23rd and 24th, 1865, gloried in the fact that those men would soon be on their way home, citizens who had performed their civic duty of protecting the Union with the expectation of returning to civilian life just as soon as possible. They were the antithesis of hirelings the antithesis of Hessians. They were one of the things that made the Union different and better than the European countries. Citizen soldiers and Union are inextricably tied together in the minds of the loyal citizenry. For this wartime generation, the surviving veterans and the Union dead, 300,000 of the latter reinterred in national cemeteries established soon after Appomattox, there were no national cemeteries before the Civil War, as you know. Those living veterans, those honored dead, reinforced notions of union, uh, served as honored reminders of a free society's reliance on citizen soldiers at a time of crisis. Now, as the title of my lecture indicates, I believe we've lost any real understanding of what union meant to the generation that fought the war. That meaning has been almost completely effaced from popular understanding of the conflict. Indeed, union, as defined in a political sense in the 19th century, has disappeared from our vocabulary. It's literally disappeared from our vocabulary. It has no meaning. I have a wonderful, I'm going to inflict one little personal anecdote on you here. I love to do research at the VHS, of course, but sometimes I do it in other places, including the Huntington Library. Uh, which is out in San Marino, California, next to Pasadena. And there's a major street in Pasadena, Union Street. It's a block off Colorado, a much more famous street. And I knew there was a copy shop on Union Street, but I couldn't figure out which way to go to get to it. And I stopped a woman who was walking the other way, and I asked her where the copy shop on Union Street was. And she looked, me, looked at me with a completely blank look. She said, what street? And I said, Union Street. She said, well, spell it. And I said, U-N-I-O-N. She said, oh, you mean Onion Street. <laughs> she said, the copy shop's that way on Onion. Just go up here. And, and I thought, we've come a long way <laughs> since the Union Monument on Onion Street went up uh, in the late 19th century. 
that's sort of a measure of where union stands. All for the onion, that was a big rallying cry uh, during the Civil War. Students and adults, in my experience, uh, who are very interested in the Civil War are nonetheless reluctant to believe that anyone would risk life or fortune for something as abstract as the Union. A war to end slavery seems far more compelling. A war to defend home ground seems far more understandable. Uh, and although Lincoln remains a towering figure in the popular imagination, few Americans associate him with the widely held idea of the Union as he put it in his second inaugural address, excuse, excuse me, his second annual address to Congress in December 1862 as, quote, the last best hope of Earth. Much Civil War scholarship over the past four decades has diminished the centrality of union. Slavery, emancipation, and the actions of black people, which were unfairly marginalized for decades in writing about the conflict, have inspired a huge and rewarding literature since the 1960s. No longer can any serious reader fail to appreciate the degree to which African Americans figured in the political, social, and military history of the war. This has been one of the most heartening developments in the field since the great successes of the Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s and 1960s. But the focus on emancipation and race sometimes suggests that the war had scant meaning apart from them, and especially that Union victory had little or no value without emancipation. Uh, millions of Americans who've watched Barbara J. Fields' memorable commentary in Ken Burns' documentary, The Civil War, surely could come away with this idea that union divorced from emancipation means nothing. A professor of history at Columbia University, Fields speaks eloquently in the documentary about the importance of emancipation, while at the same time observing that preservation of the union was, quote, a goal too shallow to be worth the sacrifice of a single life. In several parts of the series, she maintains that only the addition of black freedom to the North's strategic goals elevated the cause in a way that justified the awful human and material cost. This argument recalls Frederick Douglass's speech at Arlington National Cemetery on Decoration Day in 1871, which celebrated Union success but pronounced the war's greatest outcome, the death of, quote, the hell black system of human bondage. This placement of slavery's end in the forefront of what Northern victory accomplished certainly makes sense to us in 2010. Uh, most of us easily grasp emancipation as a noble achievement worthy of the greatest sacrifice. But popular culture in going down this road, I think, and it sort of follows along. It's hard to tell sometimes whether popular culture follows things that we do or we sort of, it's just hard to tell. Sometimes I think most of what we do is like felling trees in the farthest reaches of Siberia. Uh, they help in our world. They don't make a big impact anywhere else. Popular culture has lost sight of the Union cause, which was the most widely held of all the understandings of the war in the wake of Appomattox. There's not one memory of the Civil War, of course. There are multiple memories of the Civil War. Different people had different ways to construct their memories of the war. Most former Confederates believed that the war represented the things that the lost cause interpretation of the war said. Most of the white uh, people in the loyal states believed that the Union being saved was the most important outcome of the war. Uh, most African Americans and some white abolitionists would have said, no, it's the destruction of slavery. That's the great outcome of the war, the emancipation cause. And later in the century, in the 19th century, some white northerners and some white southerners came together and said, let's don't talk about who was right or wrong. Let's talk about the American virtues exemplified by the soldiers on both sides. Let's don't talk about slavery. Let's don't talk about emancipation. Let's don't talk about how much we didn't like each other. Let's just talk about how gallant we all were together. So there's a union memory and an emancipation memory and a lost cause memory and a reconciliation memory. And the one that resonates least now is the union memory. And that is the one that was held by far by more people in the wake of the war than any of the other three. Uh, one of the many ironies associated with this, this irony-rich part of our history. I'm gonna use Hollywood as an example of how this has happened. Hollywood's an easy target, I know. It's, it's irresistible. 
And so I'm not going to resist. Uh, Hollywood's recent Civil War-related films fail almost completely to convey any sense of what union meant to millions of loyal citizens. More than that, recent films often cast the United States Army, a military force that saved the republic and destroyed slavery, in a decidedly negative post-Vietnam light. No scene in any film during the past 25 years captures the abiding devotion to union that animated soldiers and civilians in the loyal states. Uh, this is somewhat understandable. I think long pieces of explanatory dialogue about union as an emotional and political focus uh, would bring narrative momentum to a halt in a film, and you don't want to do that in a film. Uh, yet a number of Hollywood's efforts demonstrate what a single scene can accomplish in this regard. Uh, in Casablanca, the singing of La Marseillaise in Rick's bar as the camera moves from one passionate face to the next communicates devotion to a French nation humbled by German military power. Uh, more to the point, Gone with the Wind's fancy dress ball, staged with those huge Confederate flags and a big portrait of Jefferson Davis at one end, uh, creates a strong, of, uh, a strong sense of the kind of national purpose that would prompt women such as Melanie Wilkes, to contribute their wedding rings to support Confederate armies. Scarlett gave her ring, too, as we all know. It wasn't a great and wrenching act for her to do that. She felt lighter afterwards, <laughs> like dancing. <laughs> uh, union cause advocates of the Civil War generation would be most alienated by Hollywood's negative depiction of white United States soldiers. More often than not, they appear as cruel and destructive racists who abuse black people, Confederate civilians, and Native Americans. White soldiers in glory, dances with wolves, Pharaoh's army, Cold Mountain, and many other films fit this model. Uh, the, the Union soldiers in these films look remarkably like United States military forces in Vietnam, as imagined by Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, Oliver Stone's Platoon, Brian De Palma's Casualties of War, and other such films that offer harsh images of American soldiers as brutal, unrestrained warriors. Even within the specialized world of Civil War enthusiasts who purchase prints and other contem contemporary artworks, the Union and its military idols take a decidedly secondary position behind such lost cause icons as R.E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and others. Apart from Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and his 20th Maine Infantry, the Army of the Potomac's famous Irish Brigade, and various commanders and episodes at the Battle of Gettysburg, <clears throat> the Union cause scarcely exists in this art. It's virtually invisible. The artists like Chamberlain because Chamberlain's come to the fore with Ken Burns and Killer Angels and the film Gettysburg. They like the Irish Brigade because there are a lot of Irish people around and they've got those really interesting green flags uh, so they can use another color uh, in their paintings. Ah, they're greens. Oh, I love those green flags. And Gettysburg, of course, is the great magnet for everybody. We, I know you don't in this audience because you know better. Americans think Gettysburg is the great looming midpoint of the war. It's going one way, and then there's Gettysburg, and then everybody in the Confederacy got out their calendars, circled April 9th, 1865, and said, okay, 191 days to Appomattox, and just marked off the days knowing there was no chance after Gettysburg. I was expecting a little more of a response there. <laughs> It makes me think some of you think they actually did do that. <laughs> Please take my word for it. They didn't. <laughs> they did not. Gettysburg did not loom nearly as large, especially in the Confederacy, in the summer of 1863 as it does now. And Confederate arguments about why the war went the way it did after the war have a lot to do with why Gettysburg became such a transcendent focus for so much attention. Vicksburg was far more important to Confederates at the time than Gettysburg was. I will now stop that. I'll get off that hobby horse. But I won't quite quit with the art. Do you want a picture of R.E. Lee painted by one of these artists? Or do you want one by Grant? If you want one by Lee, you have 10 times as many options as you do for Grant, unless you want Grant with Lee, 
at Appomattox. Then you have a lot more chances at Grant. William Tecumseh Sherman, invisible. Philip Henry Sheridan, invisible. You may think that's a good thing, but the point is, the point is that the art that the wartime generation bought and looked at had Sherman and Sheridan as giants. Joshua Dalton, if we told William Tecumseh Sherman now, if we could get a good channeler and get in touch with him and say, General, it's interesting that Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain is the most painted Union officer from the Civil War. He would, I think, think that was not a reasonable thing to have happened in the 150 years since the war. He might even have deployed harsh language. <laughs> the Civil War generation used all the words we use, <laughs> every one of them, <laughs> and he might have done that. Without the things I mentioned, without these popular cultural phenomenons, Burns' series, Shara's novel, the film Gettysburg based on Shara's novel, even the union topics I mentioned in this art would not be there. It's, it's because of those cultural phenomena that the Irish Brigade and Chamberlain and Gettysburg and the subjects that are chosen, they're often subjects that are in the film or in the book. In fact, the the historical characters depicted in the art often look a lot like the, the actors who play them in the films rather than the real people. I'll stop and just finish with my point is that in popular culture, the union is nowhere to be found. It is nowhere to be found. So why has this happened? Why is the union cause? Why have the military forces associated with it reach such a point. Part of the answer, as I've already noted, lies in the nebulous nature of a fight to save the Union. Moreover, in a nation that has stood first among world powers, at least since World War II, most Americans take our form of government for granted and cannot imagine an internal threat of the sort that galvanized millions of loyal Americans in 1860 and 61 and 62. Ambivalence about the kind of nation that developed after the war exacerbates the problem. For most Americans, the Union, with its factories and its large population and substantial urban development, looks very much like us. We can understand it. It looks like us. The Confederacy looks different. It looks frozen in time. It seems exotic to us, but not the Union, not the North, not the United States. It looks like us. And unhappiness with various dimensions of our modern state often translates into a harsh critique of the Union, and it comes from both ends of the political spectrum. Conservatives and libertarians wary of too much control from Washington sometimes accuse Lincoln and the Republicans of using the war to build a mighty and intrusive state, thereby robbing the Union cause of any uplifting purpose. Other Americans, unhappy with the global projection of United States military and economic power in the years since World War II, credit Union victory with making possible an avaricious state that embarked on imperialistic ventures. This formulation, this second one, has allowed Hollywood to treat United States armies, whether rampaging through the Confederate hinterlands or in Vietnam, as largely malevolent expressions of national policy. Historical context is crucial on the point of whether Union victory has value beyond the accomplishment of emancipation. Anyone remotely conversant with 19th century United States history knows that democracy as practiced in the mid-19th century denied women, free and enslaved African Americans, and other groups basic liberties and freedoms that most white northerners routinely attributed to their republic. The 1860 census tells us, tells us that almost 99% of the residents in the free states were white, 96.5% of all the residents in the loyal states which included the slaveholding states, as you know, of Missouri and Kentucky and Maryland and Delaware. And the racial views of these overwhelmingly white parts of the population offend our modern sensibilities. They are, by any modern measure, virtually all deeply racist. Yet a portrait of the nation that is dominated by racism and exclusion and oppression, the kind of portrait uh, that's present in many scholarly works, obscures more than it reveals. Within the mid-19th century Western world, the United States offered the broadest political franchise and the most 
economic opportunity. Vast numbers of immigrants believed that however difficult the circumstances they might find in the United States, relocation promised a potentially bright future. And the papers at the time reveled in the fact, papers in the loyal states, that immigration didn't diminish during the Civil War. A gigantic conflict did not persuade people from abroad to quit coming to the United States. And the paper said, look, this proves our exceptionalism. This proves the value of what we're fighting for. One Irish-born Union soldier put it this way in early 1863, if the Union loses, the hopes of millions fall, and the old cry will be sent forth from the aristocrats of Europe that such is the common end of all republics. The Lincoln administration dealt with political fissures, war weariness, apathy, and fluctuating levels of outright hostility to the war, just as Jefferson Davis and his government did in the Confederacy. Yet loyal citizens remained steadfast enough to push through to victory, despite far more casualties than in any previous American war, and the absence of a direct threat from rebel armies to their homes and farms and businesses and towns and cities. They did so, I believe, because they believed to do otherwise would betray the generation who established the Union as well as future generations who would reap its political and economic benefits. And don't, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying every person who lived in the loyal states felt this way. Of course they didn't. Lots of people, there's a, we often divide people in the Civil War into those who support the war and those who don't. There's another very large group comparable to the same large group in the American Revolution who are just hoping to kind of hunker down, ride out the storm with the least possible disruption to their lives and emerge on the other end with their families and property pretty much intact. There's a very large group like that. That's a very understudied group in Civil War literature. But for Americans infused with a sense of national exceptionalism, the stirring rhetoric of Daniel Webster got to the heart of their conception of union. This is something else that you cannot overstate in terms of its importance. Daniel Webster's uh, rhetoric was everywhere in the late antebellum period in the United States. It's, it's, it's just everywhere. I speak today for the preservation of the Union. Webster famously had proclaimed in his 7th of March speech in 1850, hear me for my cause. He went on to affirm, quote, we have a great popular constitutional government guarded by law and by judicature and defended by the affections of the whole people. No monarchical throne presses these states together. No iron chain of military power encircles them. They live and stand under a government popular in its form, representative in its character, founded upon principles of equality, and so constructed, we hope, as to last forever. Twenty years earlier, countering what he claimed was South Carolina's support for nullification, uh, Webster had thundered on the floor of the Senate, liberty and union, now and forever, one and inseparable. That speech sold nearly 150,000 copies in the wake of his giving it. And of course, each copy passed through many other hands. It influenced generations of American school children who later, like Webster, yoked liberty to union in explaining why they fought in United States armies during the Civil War. Let me just give you a sampling of representative testimony that will convey a sense of how this idea of union dominated thinking among those who refused to countenance the thought of a sundered union. They believed that the actions of the deep south states completely broke faith with the revolutionary generation, the founding generation. Here for the first time, they don't get the president they want, and so what do they do? They tear apart the entire edifice. The first time they don't get what they want, the first time they're not gonna have the Democratic Party in charge of both main branches of government, they simply tear the fabric of the nation apart. That sends a signal to the world, said the loyal citizenry, that a republic cannot function. All the oligarchs who said it will never work, as the Irish quotation I read suggests, can now say, we told you. We told you. It's too big. Too many different opinions. That kind of government cannot work. Lincoln spoke eloquently for all those who loved the Union. I'm going to just use three of his quotations, one from his first inaugural address delivered in March 1861, in which he insisted the Union was perpetual. 
He summoned images of a shared democratic destiny implicit in unionism and closed on a lyrical note. No one, it's, it, Lincoln is sort of a miracle. How you get someone who can write the way Lincoln wrote, who can distill into so few words so much about such fundamental things relating to our nation. Uh, just, it just defies belief. And uh, as you probably know, he actually wrote the things uh, that he said. <laughs> he didn't have 94 really bright young graduates of great universities giving him drafts that he changed a few words on. And, and so anyway, here is from that speech, The Mystic Chords of Memory. Stretching from every battlefield and patriot grade to every heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union. When again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. Much deeper into the war at Gettysburg in November 1863, Lincoln recalled the founders and expressed the hope that the shining American democratic example of government of the people, by the people, for the people, would endure in a restored union. He also spoke at Gettysburg, of course, of a new birth of freedom, words that to most white northerners, I believe, would not have conjured images of ending slavery, but of guaranteeing and extending their own liberty and freedom through political action and economic promise to shape and benefit from a world where the cards were not stacked against common citizens. Deep into the war, in 1864, Lincoln didn't even run as a Republican. He ran on the Union Party ticket. That's not just an accident. They didn't put 11 words in a tub and pull one out and say, let's be the Union Party. They ran as the Union Party because they believed in that very dark maelstrom of the summer of 1864 when Lincoln did not think he would be reelected, when it seemed the war might go the way of the Confederates, that the best way to rally the largest percentage of the population in the loyal states was to run as a union ticket with the only loyal Democratic senator from a Confederate, what became a Confederate state, to stay in Washington, Andrew Johnson. It's a deliberate effort to broaden support, to touch the highest number of potential voters. And that next December, December 6th, Lincoln again spoke of union as the nation's overriding goal. He's already been reelected. He doesn't need to pander to anybody at this point, but this is what he said. He said, it's time to get the 13th Amendment passed. The Senate had already passed it. It hadn't made it through the House. It's time to get this through. We don't need to wait till the next Congress comes in. Let's do this now. Let's push the 13th Amendment through the House of Representatives. He said it should be reconsidered in light of Republican triumph in the November elections. Quote, it's the voice of the people now for the first time heard upon the question, and then he got to the heart of the matter. In a great national crisis like ours, unanimity of action among those seeking a common end is very desirable, almost indispensable. In this case, the common end is the maintenance of the union. Emancipation added Lincoln stood, quote, among the means to secure that end. Roscoe Conkling became a famous senator uh, in the wake of the Civil War, a famous and powerful Republican senator. But in May of 1865, he was a congressman from upstate New York, and he greeted returning veterans of the 117th New York Infantry, who'd just come back from nearly three years in the field. The men shared a common purpose and hope, stated Conkling, quote, peace with the government and the constitution of our fathers established has been the object of the war, and the prayer of every patriot and of every soldier. And indeed, soldier testimony is overwhelming on this point. Now, soldier testimony can prove anything. The thing about the Civil War is there's such a mass of individual testimony that you can decide you want to prove something, and you can go find evidence to support it. You can even have footnotes and not even make them up. But of course, the key is looking at as much as you can and going where the evidence leads you, not cherry-picking evidence to make your argument. And if you just, the more you read, the more you will find this kind of attitude. I'm just going to quote a couple of soldiers uh, with key themes. One of the themes is to tie the struggle of 61-65 to that of 1776-83, to 83, uh, to use the kind of language Webster and Lincoln did. And here is an Ohio lieutenant. Our fathers made this country. 
We, their children, are to save it. Without union and peace, our freedom is worthless. A month before he was killed at Gettysburg, a Minnesota soldier informed a friend that he was willing to risk his life, quote, for the purpose of crushing this damned rebellion and to support, to support the best government on God's footstool. No other government is like ours. Uh, many Northerners joined Lincoln in affirming a profound <coughs> attachment to the Union as the last best hope of Earth. This comparing the Union, it's important to win the war not just because of us, but because of the example to the rest of the world. Uh, I will quote a member of the 2nd Ohio Cavalry who employed pretty flowery language. He said, the war must be prosecuted to victory for the great principles of liberty and self-government are at stake. Should we fail, the onward march of liberty in the old world will be retarded at least a century, and monarchs, kings, and aristocrats will be more powerful against their subjects than ever. An Ohio soldier writing in the immediate aftermath of Appomattox similarly celebrated the citizen soldier of the Army of the Republic. By them, the great experiment of self-government has been settled for all people in all countries beneath the sun and liberty and popular institutions everywhere recognized as an outgrowth of American destiny. Herman Melville published immediately after the war, as many of you know, a collection of poetry devoted to the war. Uh, some of the poems have become famous, some of them are quite forgettable. <laughs> many of them are quite forgettable. <laughs> But I don't care about the poetry. I care about the first thing you see uh, when you get past the title page of Walt Whitman's battle pieces. And it says this. The battle pieces in this volume are dedicated to the memory of the 300,000 who in the war for the maintenance of the Union fell devotedly under the flag of their fathers. And that is how most people would have characterized the war, the war for the maintenance of the Union. Was it a good thing that it also killed slavery? They would have said yes. But they wouldn't have said so for the, re for the reasons we want them to say so. But they would have said yes. It's good that slavery's dead. Slavery will no longer menace our Union. And the oligarchs whose power was built on the backs of slaves can no longer wield that kind of power because of the outcome of the war. Anyone searching to know why loyal Americans saw secession as something that must be suppressed no matter how hideous the price must come to grips with a central truth. And that truth is that for most of the loyal citizenry, union was the key. And it had a meaning that extended beyond our nation's boundaries. Contrary to what, what might seem sensible to many of us in the 21st century, uh, the mass of northern citizens did not see union as a goal too shallow to be worth the sacrifice of a single life. They routinely deployed United States, the Union, the country, and the nation as synonyms. More than a third of a million United States soldiers perished in the war. Uh, if we had lost at a comparable level in World War II, it would have been about 2.3 million dead instead of our 400,000 dead. Uh, in our society today, it would be more than 5 million dead uh, if we lost at the same rate of the loyal states. Wartime Northerners subscribe to a vision of their nation built on free labor, economic opportunity, as I've said, and a broad political franchise they considered unique in the world. They believed their victory, their union victory, confirmed the nation, made it stronger in the absence of slavery's pernicious influence, and set the stage for the country's continuing growth and vitality. It kept a democratic beacon shining in a world dominated by oligarchs and monarchs. Their vision of union promised liberty and freedom that while restricted in many ways, even with emancipation, even with the 15th Amendment, would expand as the Republic moved through the 19th century and into the 20th. It was a belief in this vision that led them into battle and ultimately to victory over the Confederacy. Thank you. <clears throat> And now the floor is open for questions and answers, and there, there are microphones everywhere. There's one here, and there's one there. So if you have a question, raise your hand, and I'll point to you. There's one right there.
First of all, as a Confederate, I, I, I'm glad we lost <laughs> because I really am a unionist. <laughs> but you, you were talking about numbers of people and, you know, that I, I grew up right here in Richmond and I studied Virginia history in the fourth grade and, and we, we were northern, uh, the Army of Northern Virginia and you talked about Vicksburg. So was I, and I grew up in Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> it's just well, the way it well, works out sometimes. I have a very simple question, and it's really not very uh, erudite, but in terms of the numbers of people uh, involved in the war, uh, I think of it as east of the Mississippi and then, of course, Texas, but nobody else was involved. Uh, in, in battles and so forth like that. So I, I kind of look like the battle was fought right here in Richmond and, 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 the, and its environs. Pretty but much I, along Boulevard, I think. Yeah. <laughs> kind of so, eased over toward Malvern, but right. otherwise just pretty much yeah. here. So, I mean, uh, how many people were there that really weren't involved uh, or affected? We don't know that. That's a question. We need more. The question is, I think... How many people really weren't involved in the war? It wasn't just Texas and Virginia, however, involved in the war. Uh, all the states of the Confederacy were involved. Texas felt the war less than any other part of the Confederacy because United States armies never really got there. So Texas is very different from most of the rest of the Confederacy, although it sent some very good soldiers to the Army in Northern Virginia, as you know. But all the states were involved. The loyal states, the Confederate states. But what we don't know, as I said earlier, and, and as your question uh, suggests, we don't know about this, this group of people who neither actively did everything they could to stay out of the war, I mean, deserting, uh, fighting conscription, those kinds of things, or enlisted early on. They just sort of hunkered down and didn't want to be involved unless the war. They're like Jimmy Stewart and Shenandoah. Uh, those of you who've, who've uh, suffered through that film, uh, <laughs> there he is, there he is in the Shenandoah Valley. This is how Hollywood just does these things that are so uh, stupefyingly wrong-headed. Uh, here's Jimmy Stewart. He's got six sons. They're all military age except one. It's the summer of 1864, and none of them is in the Confederate Army. Why not? Because Jimmy doesn't want them to be. <laughs> course, they'd all have been in the Confederate Army uh, since the spring of 62 at the latest, and they'd never get out, because once you're in the Confederate Army, the Confederate government keeps changing the rules on you, so you never get out. We don't know how many would fit into that group, but we do know some things. We know that a majority of all the soldiers who served in the United States armies during the Civil War and a majority of all the soldiers who served in the Confederate armies during the Civil War were true volunteers. They went in on the Confederate side before conscription in 1862. They went in on the United States side before conscription in 1863. True volunteers. So it, it, you often get a sense that everybody's sort of forced into the army in, during the Civil War, and that just that isn't true. So a lot of people are engaged because they want to be engaged for a variety of reasons, but many weren't. Who knows how many? We need some good work on that. I think we could recover part of that story, surely, but we don't, there's not much of a literature on it. Yes? We are told that the victors write the textbooks, at least. So why has it come down so um, wrong for so long as far as picturing particularly fourth grade textbooks from way back? And Sometimes they make the news. Yes. So why, why has that happened? Because the South were certainly in no position to write any textbooks for anybody at that time. You know what? The South wrote lots of textbooks. Both sides wrote their own textbooks. Both sides had people who very carefully monitored what their textbooks said. The Grand Army of the Republic in the United States had its antennae out to look for pro-Southern sentiment in Northern textbooks. The United Daughters of the Confederacy had their antennae out in the Confederacy, uh, in the former states of the Confederacy, to make sure their textbooks uh, were all right. Uh, one of my former graduate students, a, a, a very bright young man named Adam Dean, published, it an, artic published an article in the Virginia Magazine uh, not long ago about a textbook fight in the early 1970s in Virginia, which th that textbook still in the early 1970s had a powerful lost cause message about the coming of the Civil War, the war, and Reconstruction. Uh, I, I grew up in, in 
in southern Colorado, as I told you. And it just happened because of the things I read first, how I got interested as a little kid in the war, that I got interested in the Confederacy first. And so I read everything I could get about Jeb Stewart. Jeb Stewart's responsible for what I turned into, whatever that is. I was <laughs> captivated by Jeb Stewart, captivated. So I read Blackford, and I read H.B. McClellan, and I read Burke Davis, John W. Thomason, uh, Freeman, and uh, my, in southern Colorado, in the middle of nowhere, I had, there are all the Confederate guys uh, on my walls. It, I had, I, I remember distinctly a conversation I had with my grandmother Gallagher. I'm going to put this in the second volume of my memoirs, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Gary talks to Grandma Gallagher. She came by and she saw me looking at the American Heritage Picture History of the Civil War, as I was often doing. It's still the first book you should give to any young person interested in the Civil War. Give them that book. And she said, oh, that was such a tragic war, but at least it freed the slaves. And I said, well, Topi, it wasn't about slavery. It was about state rights. Because that's what I had gotten in southern Colorado in the early 1960s. So the victors may sometimes write the history, but in the case of the Civil War, that was a much disputed and fought over history, and both sides had their innings. Uh, and somebody I'm very interested in, Jubal Early, uh, wielded all his considerable influence for his long post-war life to make sure that the Confederate version of the war got into print fast and got into print with a purely Confederate message. They were very self-conscious about that. They said, we know how people write history. They read what participants write. We need to write our side so that historians will use it. And that is precisely what happened. So it's a, it's a very complicated story. But the whole, it's the textbooks have been much fought over. I'll just leave it at that. While the Union was, was uh, fighting, uh, the whole point about the Unionists there, would you not have found Southerners who would have been amazed to not think that they were the heirs to the Revolution? Absolutely. Confederates believed they were the heirs to the Revolution. That's the, the, the revolutionary documents. The revolu it's, it's like the Bible. You open it up and take what you want and ignore the rest. Uh, both sides mined the revolutionary documents for their own arguments. Who's on the great seal of the Confederacy? Yeah, everybody wants to be right with Jorge. Everybody wants him on their team. And so there he is, as he's depicted on the great statue on the Capitol grounds here. Everybody on both sides. And you could argue plausibly that you were carrying forth. I mean, as last time I checked, the Constitution allows slavery. The Confederates didn't make that up. They didn't make that up. They said it's the North that's deviated from the intention of the founders. So that's, you're absolutely right. But tonight I'm talking about the other side. And they, and they said that they were preserving the handiwork, the small d Democratic, small r Republican handiwork of the founders. And they could point to Abra Abraham Lincoln as a poster boy for what they're arguing about. Who, where else in the world? could Abraham Lincoln become president? Where else in the world could Barack Obama become president? This isn't just something that, I mean, uh, this, this, Ed's going to be, he's going to indulge me here, and he'll, he'll, <laughs> people in my world loathe the word exceptionalism as applied to the United States, but in fact, we are exceptional. There is no other place like the United States in many ways. People were aware of it then. There's no other place that people have flooded to forever. If this is such a bad place, we can only assume the rest of the world suffers from false consciousness because they keep coming here. Uh, there must be something. There must be something. And both sides argued that. Yes. The Georgetown professor that spoke here a year or two ago that relied on the soldiers' uh, letters. Chandra Manning, probably. Uh, yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, could you comment on her, her arguments? Um, well, in, she, in contrast she to, and I would to, differ on how soon and to what degree most northern soldiers embraced emancipation as a standalone goal of intrinsic value on its own, as opposed to a tool to achieve the greater goal of union. That's, that would be our greatest disagreement. That's the most remarkable feature of her book, where she departs from the rest of the literature most dramatically. And, and she and I would just disagree about that, about when it came and the degree to which it came.
Are you worn out? <laughs> Anybody else? Yes. I'm going to treat that as a friendly question. <laughs> and here's my answer. My goal every semester, and it happens every semester, so I'm quietly, vastly pleased with myself. Students come up and say, Mr. Gallagher, what party are you? We can't tell. And that's my goal. And that's I want you in the dark just the way I want them in the dark. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Yes, one more. This is the last one. Here's the key. When the person running things stands up and smiles, that means wrap it up. Well, I was just wondering, since the union was so important, why did it take so long after the war ended before the South was fully allowed to be back into the union? Well, now your selection of verbs is interesting because the verb you selected was allow. It took a long, I mean, I would say, here's my answer to that. It took a long time because this notion that reconciliation came fairly quickly and, and sort of suffused uh, the populations on both sides, I just think that's wrong. I think the bitterness was incredibly deep-seated and long-standing. And I think people could put it aside in a public forum. R.E. Lee is a perfect example of this. R.E. Lee behaved impeccably after the war. Every public utterance of his was... The war is over, we lost, we need to accommodate ourselves to the victors. So whatever they say to do, we do. That's his public stance, he never deviated from it. Privately, he seethed about what was going on. The Reconstruction Acts infuriated him. He loathed the radical Republicans and what they were doing. So was Robert E. Lee reconciled? Publicly he was reconciled, privately he was not. And he would have been uh, I mean, he was, he was much more measured in his response than most. Uh, after he died, it sort of freed a lot of people to be much more vitriolic than they, had, than they had been before. But I think it took a long time because people weren't reconciled, because there was great bitterness. Uh, Robert Garlic Hill Kane. We, we, there's so much to say in so little time. That's the... Close the doors, please, Ham. <laughs> I'm going to take my coat off. <laughs> I think, it's hard for, I think it's hard for us, and I'll stop here, I promise. It is hard for, it's hard for us to read. Okay, I'll stop right now. <laughs> it's hard for us to recapture how profoundly unsettling emancipation was for the Confederate South. We, it, it's virtually impossible. People often will say to me, well, look at Jim Crow. Well, we know Jim Crow came. Nobody in 1865 knew Jim Crow was coming. All they knew was that they're in, and this idea that only slaveholders have a stake in slavery, just get past that. All the white South had a stake in slavery. All of the white South had a stake in the, in the race control dimension of slavery. Many non-slaveholders would lease slaves during high work times of the year. I mean, they're, they're, you just can't, it's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere. And the idea of facing the future, uncertain whether the white men of the South will be able to vote, and facing the prospect that perhaps freed black men would be able to vote, it's just the world pulled apart unimaginably. There's a wonderful diary by a man named Robert Garlic Hill Kane, who worked uh, in, the, in, the, in the Confederate government, <clears throat> married to one of Thomas Jefferson's granddaughters, lived over near Charlottesville. He traveled through the state right after Appomattox, and he wrote in his diary about the perceptions that he found among people in the wake of defeat. And, and, and I can only uh, paraphrase him here, but he said that the, the ending of slavery with this general emancipation immediately and with no recourse for the white South would in the fullness of time be considered, and this is a direct quote, the greatest social crime committed in the history of the world. The greatest social crime committed in the history of the world. That's a lot to take in if you are an ex-Confederate, and it's not going to make you 
This reaching across the bloody chasm stuff, I just think has been wildly exaggerated. There, there were profound differences that remained in place. Profound. Uh, the Confederacy quit not because they sort of got tired of fighting. They, they quit, and they were, they were unequivocal about this. They were defeated. United States armies proved they could go wherever they wanted to go and do whatever they wanted to do. So there's no point in struggling longer. It doesn't mean they were reconciled to it. They accepted it, but, but it left a terrible. Just read the lyrics of, oh, I'm a good old rebel. Read those lyrics. That tells you what you need to know, I think. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.